you know, your enterprise developer is, is a great developer, but they know that they need to get this thing done in two months, right? So unless there's something that can't get solved with existing tools, they're going to reach for the stuff that they know. Enterprises have learned how to engage with their users, their customers, by using really sort of the interaction patterns that they see within the consumer internet. The consumer internet taught enterprises what applications should look like, what architecture should look like, really everything. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, Grant sits down with Ed Enough, Chief Product Officer at Datastax. Ed brings over 25 years of experience as an entrepreneur, creating innovative consumer and enterprise products and starting and selling several companies. As an executive, Ed specializes in defining product strategy at early stage and publicly traded companies. Ed begins this episode with a look into his first foray in enterprise software, co-founding a startup that specialized in enterprise portals in the late 1990s. This is where Ed learned many of his lessons in creating enterprise software that he would use throughout his career. A keen observation into how the enterprise would evolve through observing interaction patterns within the consumer internet led Ed to hone a viable enterprise strategy at his future endeavors. The conversation shifts to Ed's current role at Datastax, and the discussion leads to a talk about the difference between corporate IT and software engineering, as well as the importance of keeping projects alive whether or not developers are still supporting them. The two then touch on a host of topics ranging from the importance of onboarding engineering to why building your own tooling internally provides a level of standardization that increases the chance of future success. Finally, the pair touch on the carrying costs of legacy software, finding a perfect product market fit, and how to build consumer trust that lasts for years. A seasoned veteran of the enterprise software world, Ed provides a fascinating insight and long view look into the evolution of shipping software to the enterprise. This episode provides valuable retrospective, as well as an illuminating look into the future. If you're currently building enterprise software, this episode is loaded with fantastic lessons and strategies that we're sure you'll find rewarding. Many, many thanks to Ed for his time with us, and we hope you enjoy. All right, Ed, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. This has been long overdue. Yeah, I wanted to have you on for a while. So let's dive in. Tell me a bit about how you got into enterprise software. You know, I, I actually jumped into enterprise software fairly early on in, in my career. In the uh, the the late '90s, I co-founded a startup that was doing enterprise portals, and jumped uh, both feet in there and uh, learned a lot of the hard lessons of uh, of doing enterprise stuff. What was an enterprise portal for? for what's the context there? Sure. So you know, the idea was. 
well, now I'm actually realizing that like all the reference points are probably like many years uh, out of date. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, you used to have your personalized start page, like my Yahoo and oh, things sure. like that, that. You know, and and you'd have all of your your personalized content and. And those were were super popular, you know, in in the consumer internet. And Yahoo had their site, and Excite, and Infoseek, and all of those companies. That well, I guess Yahoo's still around, but uh, barely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I'd actually been working um, in the consumer internet space. I'd been at Wired, running the the Hotbot search engine, and and we'd been you know trying to build a, a portal strategy around that. I think um, you know this, but Hotbot was my favorite search engine when I was uh, in high school. So that <laughs> just to, to make you feel extra, old. you know, cool. That was yes. the, that was the one. I might have even been in middle school. I can't really remember. Right. So let's let's go uh, all the way. You were in elementary school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was a, it was the first search engine that I was ever really introduced to. So I was like, this was great. Search is cool, but yeah, you know, I was actually. Um, Reminiscing with uh, with Eric Brewer because he was uh, at the time uh, was the founder of Ink to Me that built the search technology that we used, and so this was a partnership between Wired and uh, and Ink to Me to to, to produce this. Uh, and it's you know it's really funny just twenty years later ending up working with him at, at Google uh, afterwards, but but back then this this stuff was pretty cool. Anyway, as as part of that experience, there was this idea that you would create this personalized start experience for the web of of aggregating all of this content and delivering it into sort of this single integrated experience. And so myself and Oliver Moto, uh, was was my co-founder at the time, we said, look, if if there was a way to you know, make this something that that enterprises could use for their employees or or even for for their customers, where you could pull together a bunch of of content from various services and integrate it in, into this. That 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 would be a valuable thing, and it, it turned out to actually be a pretty big deal. Um, there were a number of companies that that pursued this. Um, Epicentric was was our company, and uh, in fact, Edith from Launch Starkly. Um, was one of our engineering leaders back then. Amazing. Uh, yeah, so it's a very small world. But uh, but yeah, so we were doing that. There were other companies, Plum Tree. There was uh, Top Tier. Uh, pretty much everybody got acquired. Uh, Top Tier went to SAP. Plum Tree went to a company called BEA that then became part of Oracle. We got acquired by Vignette that then got acquired by OpenText. So all this stuff is actually still in use. Uh, of course, Microsoft got into the space with with SharePoint and and so on. But that was my uh, my first real exposure to enterprise. And I got into it like everybody does when they get into enterprise, which is to go and say, oh, you know, it's just all about selling to to, to businesses and you know, and you you quickly get that the whole education that goes into okay, what does that all mean? And, and how big did uh, Epicentric get before you acquired? Uh, so in terms, I don't remember the details on where our revenue was at, and so on. We were you know like a four or five hundred person company. Um, we were uh, you know getting ready to uh, to to do an IPO when the markets crashed and all of that. It was your, it was your classic. You know, sort of Web 1.0 story of, of get big quick. We had a bunch of big customers. Excite, in fact, used us for their uh, Excited Work portal. Verizon used us for everything. Um, 
ton of companies did. The software is still in use in, in a bunch of, of places. Uh, you know, when when you go and log in and your healthcare providers and and telco companies and so on are, uh, you know, they they keep that software around for like you know decades. Yeah, I mean, is there like a a modern sort of version of these kind of things? Sometimes these you know like these technologies and products that started years ago. If you think about you know Webvan became Instacart kind of thing. Like, yeah, what, is that is there like a example of sort of the enterprise portal today? Like, what would be the the modern equivalents? So, so the interesting thing is actually a lot of what I, you know, going back to patterns, this was something that I actually had seen over and over in my career, which was that typically from the start of the internet age, you know, enterprises have learned how to engage with their users, their employees, their customers by using really sort of the interaction patterns that they see within the consumer internet. The consumer internet taught enterprises what applications should look like, what architecture should look like, really everything. So in the case of of Epicentric for us, that's where I saw that pattern. I said, okay, like you can literally go and take what people are doing in the consumer internet, figure out a way to package it, and you have, you know, a viable, some form of that will be a viable enterprise strategy. And so at Epicentric, we became part of Vignette, and Vignette was very much about taking the content publishing that that a bunch of, of the early news websites had gone and, and packaged up, and they took it to the enterprise. I was at Six Apart, the blogging company. I was running the, the enterprise platform, and we were literally doing the same thing. You saw that all of the the media companies were saying, you know, the way that you want to communicate with your audience in a more agile way is through blogs, right? So everybody, now you see every site, you know, uses that blog template format. And, and so, you know, at the time, Six Apart, and of course, WordPress took that pattern and, and brought it to enterprise. Apogee that I was at later was, again, the same thing. Like, companies were going and saying, Let's look at the way that Twitter is is managing, you know, connecting to developers outside of, you know, out in the greater internet. Can we leverage that idea? And then you had companies like Apogee and Mashery and Layer 7. And now you have Kong still following in that path, which is to go and say, like, you know, the way that the internet companies do it is the way that the enterprise companies are going to be doing it five years later. So that is a, a constant pattern like people go and say what should i do for my enterprise startup and and you go and say okay take a look at what people who are in the forefront people who are doing you know tech uh you know typically for for internet consumer purposes find that technology and figure out how is that going to be democratized for all of the rest of of you know the, the global 2000 and you'll be on to something so what are you doing now well, you know, Grant, uh, about two years ago, had they uh, the the opportunity to go and uh, join Chet Kapoor, who was um, the CEO of Apogee, and uh, who uh, who I'd worked with for a number of years, and and we we brought Apogee to to Google back in 2016. They they acquired Apogee. Uh, I spent spent a few years there um, integrating Apogee into Google Cloud. And then Chet got contacted by uh, by Datastax to uh, to to be their new CEO and to bring 
Datastax, which is the company that makes Cassandra, the open source database, and bring that to the cloud. And that seemed like a pretty cool challenge. So, so I've been at Datastax for the last two years. We launched Astra, which is our our cloud database platform as a service uh, that takes Cassandra and and makes it dead simple to uh, to use and and run in the cloud. We've taken Cassandra, we've rearchitected it, uh, separated compute and storage, so now it runs serverless in the cloud. And so now any developer that wants all the scale and power of Cassandra can go and you know do it, uh, you know, pay as you go dirt cheap to use. And so so it's really cool. I've used Cassandra for a number of years. We used it at at Apogee. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually was using it at the startup that 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 I'd founded before I joined Apogee. Um, so love the Cassandra database. It's just amazingly powerful, but it's always been super hard to to run to operate at scale. And so we've made it made that dead simple. And so that's what I've been up to. Oh that's great. And you're the chief product officer, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Was that your role at Apogee as well? Yeah, so at Apogee, um, I was uh, the head of product strategy, and uh, and and so did that. Uh, it was a little different model. We didn't have a chief product officer at Apogee, but, okay. but effectively was was the person figuring out the the product strategy for for our API management products. Very cool. It is really interesting that to all, all of these you know kind of companies that that sort of are inspired by consumer technology, and then you you see even like design and other things kind of you know flow through uh, into enterprise software. You know, and, and to your point, like you know, even a lot of the infrastructure software companies that are out there are really—it's not the way that Google is is giving you a search experience, but the way they're running it behind the scenes ends up becoming the the sort of technology that 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 becomes the foundation for the next generation of of applications. Do you think that it's important to like sort of spend time at these consumer internet companies in order to see what they're doing, or do you think it's more like? You know, you you don't have to. You can be in the enterprise. You can sort of just like read the white papers, see what people are open sourcing, or like how, how do you think the best way to to kind of engage or be aware of those things is? Well, I think that's that's a separate question. Yeah, I think it doesn't hurt to have a point of view on what do engineering practices and operational practices look like in a live fire situation, hmm. and you know, I I think that you won't get that purely from an enterprise background. Um, and a lot of vendors don't get it. So, But you have to do it by having done a stint at, um, at an internet company. Um, I've had the privilege of, I, I think, four times in my life being at, at, you know, um, internet companies where, you know, we were on, on, on the firing line of like, you know, if your system doesn't work, your business doesn't exist. Right. Like had that back at wired with, with hot wired and, and hot bot had that at, at, um, uh, widget box, which pivoted and became flight. But, you know, we were delivering live internet services, had that at six apart, you know, with with our TypePad service, and then then obviously while at Google, saw that with Google Cloud, and and there is the, I think that that's super valuable to have been exposed to that. Is it the only way to get it? No, I, I think that you can get there through conversations, mm-hmm. you know, uh, reading about it, understanding it, but but I do think it it doesn't hurt. Now, I would say for a lot of the current generation of people who are are going and 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 doing enterprise startups, a lot of this knowledge is now permeated. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I would say that like 
10 years ago when when I would look at an enterprise startup, I could tell pretty clearly the difference between the ones where nobody in the company had had ever had to carry a pager and you know deal with 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 an outage of some sort versus the ones you know where they did. So so it doesn't hurt. I mean, you know, is is it essential? I don't know, but I I do think from an operational infrastructure piece. On the flip side of things, I do think for a long time, getting the user experience component of it was hard to find. Nowadays, I, I think you can get that that experience. You can get, you know, in terms of, of creating user experiences, in terms of, of understanding what people are trying to do. You know, in fact, I think oftentimes the internet companies are, are probably maybe not even the best place to, to get that perspective. But, but if you were to have rolled the clock back 10, 15 years, you know, it probably was the only place you could find people who who actually, you know, had really sort of lived and died by the quality of their user experience. Yeah, that's a great point. Because, I mean, ultimately, these consumer applications, if they weren't usable enough, they just didn't get the adoption, you didn't get the scale, it didn't work. It's like, so it had to, you had to test your way to really usable versions of, of software. And then those lessons Turns out those lessons are pretty applicable, and you kind of like figure out the patterns again and apply those forward. And you're like, okay, you know, once you've landed on an experience that makes sense to consumers, it'll almost inherently make sense when it's applied to enterprise software, right? Like the yeah, the same the same patterns. I, I mean, I think the patterns definitely do apply. It's it's a there's there's an interesting tangent we could get on, which is we are getting to the point where a lot of Infrastructure technology comes pre-baked with some sort of assumptions in terms of how people go and manage their software development teams and so on and and processes and and we start to get into a into a, a harder conversation about how realistic is that. But uh, we could probably go on for hours if we get onto that one. Maybe we should. Yeah, <laughs> you give me your thoughts. Okay. Well, I I think one of the things that has been a real challenge in bringing technologies into specifically IT. It isn't so people don't say I'm bringing it into the enterprise, but it's really about or it's really about IT. There are often a lot of assumptions that IT is um, software engineering, and so the idea is that somehow that if you were doing IT right, and you know you had read all of the various books on you know the various projects and so on um, that you're you're running your modern IT shop and it looks exactly like the same way that like Google looks from from a software engineering standpoint and the reality is that is not really the case and may never be the case hmm. the way that a software engineering team looks within each of these companies will in an ideal situation will look very similar. But the way that sort of IT systems are run and deployed looks very different. And in fact, one of the insights that I had when when I joined Google and, and we went and looked at, you know, how are a lot of the business systems run? We found that you know they definitely run them in in very agile ways and so on but but a lot of it ends up looking a lot like like the IT systems that you would see at any other enterprise now where the difference would be is in how are the actual end user facing services built those are are built in a very dramatically different ways so you have to be careful 
in projecting the adoption of the processes and the acquisition of the skills when you start to go and look at at how an enterprise is going to work. It, it will happen, but it happens on its own timescale. And some of these things may never happen. They're just These companies are just not organized that way. And so oftentimes people are overly optimistic. And I think we saw this in, you know, uh, for example, in the early days of, of service mesh, I think is, is probably something that, that a lot of folks, you know, who follow the technologies that, that you and I are interested in probably looked at. And, and mm-hmm. you know, service mesh has been very successful in certain areas, but there were a lot of assumptions that, that it would play a role within how enterprise integration scenarios were, were being addressed. Like, how do I go and get my CRM system to go and talk to my, you know, accounting system and what have you? And, mm-hmm. and it turns out that that definitely was not the place where service meshes, or for that matter, microservices in general, were playing a major role. And, and the reason is because those are not software development domain problems. Those are very much about taking two off the shelf or possibly in the cloud systems and and gluing them together. And, and it's done as a sort of one-time, you know, do and forget type of project that's built and by, you know, uh, not through a, a classic software development cycle, whereas a lot of the assumptions um, within, you know, sort of a lot of service mesh thinking were, were that you would have a very different team that would be doing these things, perhaps perhaps a, a, a very modern SRE team, but but certainly the assumption is that, that you know, your, your SWEs, your software engineers are, are in the loop at an appropriate level. So again, this is, is one of these things where you can't assume that even though people, you know, need to adopt all this technology, they adopting a business process, adopting a people process is a pretty, pretty steep step. Mm, okay. And so the lesson here, and this is actually super interesting, is that corporate IT is different from like the engineering department, right? And so these are two disparate orgs and corporate IT is generally, even at Google, you're saying is sort of like not run the same way that a software development team is run. And it's it's not about the same practices around true, like you know, sort of the SDLC, right? The software development lifecycle. But instead, it's about like, I mean, I guess I'd say like, how do you solve a business problem probably somewhat quickly and fairly reliably? And that's more the MuleSoft sort of integration tooling than it is like a, you know, a, a service mesh, like, you know, in your own, you're writing code to do these things kind of tooling. Is that accurate? Yeah, essentially. Look, I think the other important lesson is that IT is not monolithic because the other piece that you'll get is a bunch of people coming in and saying, oh, that's absolutely not true. Like, for example, going back to Google, I mean, it's a 100,000-person company. There's probably, please don't, listeners, don't come in and and inundate us with emails and tweets saying, you know, Ed doesn't know what he's talking about. I certainly don't. I All I can speak to is one specific project sure. that I looked at where I was like, oh, that, you know, that looks very similar to a, a classic, you know, IT project. Um, and it's just, by the way, it's the same thing. You know, I think you've probably seen this yourself. You go to many Fortune 500 or you know Fortune 100 enterprises, and you'll talk to a team that literally could have walked out of, and they're doing the same quality software engineering that exists at Google. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that they're they're not. What I'm saying is mm-hmm. that, on the other hand, just because you find a team 
at and I'm you know purposefully not naming companies because I don't want to. That's some big you know, bank. Whatever. Yeah, say some big bank or whatever. Just because you will find one team that is fully embracing, you know, modern DevOps processes or or fully doing everything the way that you know we would all generally agree is the you know best practices. Doesn't mean that the rest of the organization is. And so, you know, you always have to go and say, okay, what are the standards and best practices across the organization? I think, you know, to bring this back to what does this mean for, like, for example, enterprise founders, um, as you try to go and time this technology, any specific thing, let's, and, and again, most of what we deal with these days is in the cloud native ecosystem, you have to go and really sort of make sure that you're engaging with the right team. Otherwise, you may find, you know, you may read all of these blog posts. You might be and say, oh, this big bank is all in on cloud native. I'm just going to walk in on this team and say, hey, you know, I've got this, you know, platform and it deploys on top of Kubernetes. And they'll be like, uh, yeah, we're not the team that uses Kubernetes. Um, you know, do you have a, uh, you know. An OBA, yeah, or do you have a. Exactly, whatever, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, so that's the other thing I think you find is that this stuff is is all sorts of interesting pockets and stuff. Yeah, no, I mean the, the idea that there's like this sort of like a heterogeneity in terms of how even just within a, a single organization, the way that each different team will do things, and there's not like generally standardized practices around most processes, right? It's like, yeah, well, we have a procurement process, but we don't necessarily have like a you know, standardized, you know, application deployment process or like integration process or, you know, like there's a, when you get into the details, it becomes sort of the, the problem of that team to solve in whatever way they want to solve it. Yep. What I would say is, is that the closer that you get to where, where the business or the enterprise interacts with their users, their consumers, their buyers, that's where you start to see that, you know, the technology strategy ends up being more uniform and much more progressive, right? So if you want, if you want to go and find where's Kubernetes being used, look at the team that has to deal with, you know, that absolutely needs, you know, the elastic scalability and, and reliability around that. Don't assume that sort of the backend system that is dealing with, with say, employee-facing systems or, you know, other pieces is going to be where you find that stuff. But everything starts to look the same the closer you get to the web front end, the mobile front end, the stuff that goes out on the internet. That's where where the people who are succeeding have gone and adopted the best practices. And and you know, to use a buzzword, if they're building digital products, right? It doesn't matter whether they are a retailer or they are, you know, Google or Netflix. They're all using cloud technology. They're all using cloud native, and they're probably adopting a lot of the development practices that go with it. As you get away from that, you get things that are much more project-based, where Hmm. people go and say, okay, I'm building this application or I'm building this integration. Maybe it's an HR portal or something. I've built it. I've deployed it. Now I'm done. Now the engineers go off and work on something else. For a true internet scale, internet facing, user facing application, you're never done with it, right? Right. So in those situations, that's where you'll have a standing engineering team that's working on it, doing completely like 
you know, for example, why does Google retire a, a, a an application? Everybody complains when they do, but why do they do it? Well, they do it because at an internet company, you wouldn't have something that's out there that you didn't have a team working on, right? And right. the day that you get to the point where you go and say, I don't want to to have a team working and revving this thing is the day you shut it down. You don't, you know, it's an anti-pattern to go and do a keep the lights on for, you know, an internet service. That's how you, that's how you get into trouble, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas within IT, you know, you'll have a lot of, of applications uh, that, that you do keep the lights on. It, it, I mean, you know, where you go and say, okay, you know, this is some backend system. And as long as I'm able to process an invoice or something on it, perfectly okay to, to maximize the life on it, even if the developers that built it are no longer with the company. It, that, it, that isn't an anti-pattern. That's just useful life of a system. And so that's the part where when you're bringing this stuff and you're, you're dealing with, with an enterprise, you're like navigating this, this landscape. Like, am I, am I dealing with the stuff that's on the cutting edge that, that has active investment, has development teams? Like, that stuff is going to look the same. That team is going to be ready and often like really eager to go and, and deal with cutting edge stuff. I think it's a really interesting sort of insight here, this idea of time frame based and I'm trying to figure out how you you mentioned like project versus standing team like how how do you describe the two different sort of models here you know in like of engagement I guess like what how do you, how do you think about those what do you call that yeah so we actually use a framework that we call project program platform that we actually use in our sales process around this so first of all a lot of things within the enterprise are done on a project basis a lot more so than people give credit for and and so those are applications where a team is formed they have a a defined scope they are are delivering an application uh maybe for internal or external use they know what it is that they they need to build they want to go and get it done they'll reach for their off-the-shelf technologies this is where a lot of the the stuff that companies do from a developer adoption and a, a developer enablement really pays off because what happens is, you know, your enterprise developer is, is a great developer, but, you know, they know that, that they need to get this thing done in two months, right? So unless there's something that can't get solved with existing tools, they're going to reach for the stuff that they know. And if you've got a startup, if you're, you know, trying to, to sell into that, you know, a lot of what you're communicating is how you remove anything that would be an, an impediment to them getting it done in a 90-day in time frame and them getting, you know, up and online really quickly. You have your program, which is really sort of, you know, that is typically a uh, something where there are, um, well, there's typically at least one business stakeholder that is trying to get something done. Oftentimes, this might be like a, a company's foray into e-commerce or something that that has a strategic impetus around it. There are multiple teams that that are involved, and so in that case, the goal is like, okay, how do we go and have impact? How do we go and compete? What is it that you know successful internet companies do, and and can we use that too? And and so you have sort of a business technologist, kind of a mini CTO who is often the person who drives that. And their title differs from company to company, but these are really innovation driven. And then you've got the platform decision, which is where you go in and say, okay, we're going to standardize. And typically there may have been one or more projects, and often in many cases, 
dozens of projects that have been built and each project sort of selected their technology. You may have had like a program that became really successful and now it's being mainstreamed. But now the CIO comes in and says, okay, we need to now get some leverage because this is a standard technology. I want to be able to go and and hire for this. You know, we're going to go and and make this a key skill that everybody we, we hire has to have. And, and, uh, and I want to go and deal with a vendor that, you know, is, is going to be able to stand by us for, for all of these decisions. And it may or may not be the most, uh, you know, technology forward vendor. It's going to be the one that has the best success at, at, at addressing, you know, enterprises business needs. And so, so typically as a startup, you are probably playing at the project or program level because those are in the situation where people are, you know, the project is really, I got to get it done. And the program is, I don't care what the standard is. I want to go and, and what's, what makes me the most competitive. But by the time you get to the platform level, you're talking about how do we reconcile and how we standardize. And so Kubernetes, for example, has, has gone through. I don't think Kubernetes ever played really that strongly at the project level. I actually think, and, and a lot of people have pointed this out, that, that a lot of these things were, you know, at the project level, that's where things like the cloud services and even things like Heroku would go and play. Like, I just want to get it done, like, like really dead, simple, straightforward tools. At the program level, that's where people went and said, okay, like I'm a major retailer. I want to use the same technology that Amazon uses, right? And so they'd go and say, okay, how do we go all in on cloud native and build something around that? And that's where, where you'd have really some sort of innovative leaders. And then now we're at the point where a lot of that has now graduated to be on, on the CIO's plate where where they're saying, okay, like we've done a bunch of these projects and programs and they've been successful, but now I want to standardize on it. And then and that's now where they're going and looking and saying, okay, like, you know, who do we standardize among like, you know, our our big three or big four vendors that are going to be our our platform technology. And then that's where you've got the OpenShift and Anthos and Tanzu and all of those are really sort of bidding to be the the CIO platform choice. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about these, like I'm guessing they inform how you what you do for go to market marketing, oh, the whole yeah. spectrum. Like you have to sort of look at this early on in order to understand, you know, what are we doing? How do who are we trying to influence, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everything, at least, and again, this has been the technique and pattern that, that you know, we've used and that I've seen work at, at previous companies and, and so on, which is like your projects, these days, your projects are going as much as possible to self-serve, right? That's like people come in and you want to remove all the friction. You want to give people, you know, easy access to stuff. You want to go and do as much as you can from a developer adoption standpoint to make people like just reach for these tools and have a comfort level. So yes, you've got your your sellers there, but they tend mostly to focus on like onboarding rather than going and, and having like a quota sales team there. Like at least mm. from what I've seen in the conversations I've had and what we've seen directly, like you want to help everybody at that level. You don't want like somebody coming in and saying, "Oh, I'm going to go and optimize for what I think is the big deal." Mm. Like you just you want to figure out how is it that you can address everybody who's doing any project. Don't start going and saying, "Oh, that one is too small" or that whatever. It's just get them using your stuff. When you get into 
the program stage, that's where you're talking to somebody who, again, is, you know, that's where your sellers first engage. That's where your deals are going to start to be at the, where your deal sizes are going to get to the point that they support a, a direct engagement model. And so, so that's where you go in and, and start to, you know, have a more high touch model. Typically what the conversation looks like at that point is where you're talking to them about how people who have succeeded have done so from an architecture standpoint, from technology choices, from, you know, sort of insights gained. And that's typically your selling approach is very consultative in that approach of going and saying, yeah, you know, this is how uh, Netflix does it. This is how Google does it. This is how an Amazon does it. And and you're you're often talking to enterprise architects and you're talking to these, what I call business technologists, but like I said, they're, whatever's on their business card varies very, you know, widely. And then when you when you're talking to CIO, again, it's standardization, and the end result is an ELA, an enterprise uh, license agreement. Like what the CIO wants to know is they want to make a bet on your company, and they want to go and say, okay, we are going to get a tremendous amount of efficiency by optimizing around around this, and I'm going to be able to get the you know best possible economic terms. As a startup, you may get a few of those, but you know, unless you're really good at that, what you want to be doing is is building your projects and program wins. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I actually think one of the challenges for for startups, and we felt this very early in the first, like, call it year, replicated. And I know some other early stage founders felt the same way. Um, there's a step before project, even yeah. which I'll which I'll follow your P. I'll call it playing. Yep. And that's just when like a a CTO or somebody comes in and they're like, you're like, oh man, I got this really high level person at this great company that's like, you know, playing with my with my tool, but they're not. They don't, there's no project behind it. They're just like, I want to know what this thing does. I want to understand how you know maybe I could use it someday down the line. But like that's something you have to sort of be aware of that like it happens right, particularly in open source, you know, all these different places. Like people will. We're inquisitive, curious folks who are just going to like dive into something and want to understand it. You know, they've heard somebody had a good a good use case and it's working well for someone, and they're like, "Wow, this isn't really you know this is this yeah we might need this in three years, right?" And so they kind of shelf it for that for that time. And then a project to me was always like somebody has a goal. They're like they're trying to get something done, and there's like a time frame to your point. And that was like that's a great thing to see when you start to evolve to where there are projects. People are like. You know, in our business, it was like, "Hey, we're modernizing our application to use Kubernetes, and we want to, you know, be able to to deploy it out to all our customers." We'd be like, "Amazing! Like that's that's what we do, right?" And it wasn't like, "Hey, we're exploring this as a path, and maybe we'll do it someday." And so, you know, you see that evolution. I think it's a really good signal that like the market timing has gotten close to where you are. So, oh my God, I'm I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah, no, this is definitely the case. Like these are the things that as a startup founder. You know, or just anybody who's trying to get something off the ground. This is what's going to screw you up really bad, honestly. <laughs> and, and also create false horizons where you're like, "We're almost there." No, we're not. False horizon. I keep going up the mountain. Keep going up the mountain. Absolutely. No. It's this is this is the part that's going to wreck you. And yeah, by the way, like yeah. if you're a small startup and you're dealing with this, like I'd love to get into like how you how you got uh, through this because you know what ends up happening is this is where enterprise SaaS for applications is dramatically different than enterprise infrastructure. 
Mm, interesting. Yeah. So, and if you go and talk to like people who do like growth marketing and everything, and you read all the stuff in the SaaS ecosystem, everything that you read about like growth marketing, growth hacking for, for applications, you need to throw out the window when you start actually doing like growth hacking for infrastructure. Because if you've got like an HR app or whatever, a CRM app, like a large percentage of the folks that log in, like they have some intent to buy. Yeah. They're, they're not just like logging in for the sake of it. They're not like, you know, go. And, and, and of course, again, we'll get everybody like coming in saying, Ed, you don't know what you're talking about, which is always true. Um, they'll be like, no, no, no. We have that same thing in the SaaS apps. But I will tell you with infrastructure, much, much higher percentage. Like yeah. somebody's like goes on like Hacker News and like says, oh, I've got a new database or I've got a new container, you know, orchestration. I'm sure like people are just like, like every developer like logs in and it's like, like, oh, I'll check it out. What the hell? Why not? You know, and they'll have no project, yeah. but you'll see it and you'll be like, oh, I saw so-and-so from Big Bank. Like, oh my God, we're like, we're on our way. Look at the interest. And and so, like, the qualification process, we do this. So we, a big part of our effort, you know, over data stacks with, with our Astra databases of service is about, like, is there anything indirectly or directly that we can do to just determine do they have a project or not, hmm. right? Because if they don't have a project, if they don't have a, a timetable for something to, to go live, then it's great. Like, hey, welcome in, welcome, try everything out. Do things like like I'm perfectly happy to have you there, but if you do have a project, then you know our goal is what can we do to help you select this technology? What can we do to get you up and running? You know, on it. What what is your deadline? What where are you trying to achieve? And so, if you haven't, and as I said, either directly, like you know, we'll have pop-ups and everything we can in the onboarding experience to try to get you to signal to us that you've actually got a project and we do our best to infer it, you know, algorithmically, because otherwise you'll be looking at the data and you'll have no idea what's going on. You'll be scratching your head. You'll be saying, oh, I've got all of these people. Did they churn? What, what are they doing? Mm. And, and so if you can't separate out the people who have no project, there's a lot of learners which is great. We love learners, like people coming in, like students and stuff. Like, absolutely, you know, want you learning how to use Cassandra and using our service. But when I'm looking at the dashboards, when I'm trying to 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 say, okay, like how many of these people are becoming paying users? If I can't sort out, like, which set of these folks is is again, they're just you know, they're learners, they're tire kickers, they're, they're folks that are coming in and, and investigating from people who have an active project, then I have no way of managing my funnel. And that's what it, ultimately what it comes down to is you're, you're, you know, you have to do some form of funnel management to try to figure out. Or a, even optimize your product so that it works better. Well, for, yes. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, ideally you want to be, you know, and this is the debate you always have, which is like, like any user is a valid user, but if they had no project, to begin with, then you could be debating all day long. You'd be like, oh, the data shows everybody gets to the screen and they do nothing. And it's like, how do you know that they actually would have ever did anything? They didn't have, they had no data to load, right? Like, you know, yeah. in our case, again, with a database product, we're like, oh, should we have a data import tool? And then the question is, how do we know they actually had any data, <laughs> right? So you have to, yeah, I mean, that that qualification 
that will drive you nuts if you don't get a handle on it. And, and you actually try to do a lot of that, you're saying, like in the product, right? So yeah. using, you know, you said pop-ups, like what are the sort of the implementation details there that you're getting that signal from? So this is the interesting thing, which is a lot of the time, and, and this, was, this was interesting. This is one of these ones where from a self-service standpoint, a lot of people beat themselves up and they think that like, that self-service means, for example, you know, no contact or whatever. So the reality is, you know, it is perfectly okay to engage with people. Things like intercom, the chat button, all of these things, you know, self-service just means that you're letting the product as much as possible speak for itself. But it's like, you know, it's it's like when you go into the Apple store, I mean, there's still people there to like answer any questions that you might have and, and what have you, right? It's just, Very true. you know, they're just not there like pushing on commission, going and saying, hey, do you want, you know, an Apple watch with that, right? Like they're, you know, kind of put you they, on the Apple, you know, subscription plan for the next thirty years, you know, to get yeah. every phone and device we release. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that you often see is that people try to go and over optimize for trying to infer. They want to do everything from a data science standpoint, and then you're like, oh, I need a, hmm. uh, and then you never have a big enough data science team. And for a lot of startups, like the data science team is just you and in, in your spare time. But even in cases where you do have that team, like they're, they're overloaded. And so one of the things as a product manager that, that I often point out is, you know, it is okay to go and pop something up and go and say, hey, do you have a project? Would you like a, uh, you know, an onboarding expert to help you? Do you have a go live date? Do you have a project? Do you have, like, people start worrying about the friction on that. Like, they don't want to put in the sign-up page where somebody goes and has, like, some buttons of going and saying, hey, are you a student? Like, what's your experience level? Like, they don't want to go and, like, they're like, oh, we're going to lose signups if we do that. Well, the reality is that you'll end up with a bunch of signups that you don't know anything about. And, and it is actually better for you and your users for you to have a little bit more of an insight as to what your users are trying to do mm-hmm. than to just, you know, say, I don't, I don't want to have any signup left behind. Like you will, you'll, you will end up with a bunch of signups that are just like nothing. Like somebody signed up and they don't even remember they Like you'll interview them three months later and they'll be like, oh, I don't even remember signing up for your service. And so when you get into that trade-off, don't be afraid to introduce a little bit of friction for the purpose of qualification. Now, of course, when I say this, then the marketing team perks up. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, can you have them like say what the size of their organization was and do they have a budget and all? No, that's not what I'm saying. And where like, did they find out about us? Yeah, and where did they find out? Like, yeah. like, yeah. Like, the question no, that no, no one has ever answered accurately on any forum they've ever filled out. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, 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 what's the funniest answer I can put down? Exactly. Yeah. Like, like, no, I don't mean that. I'm, I'm talking about stuff specifically to the user journey. Like, like it is okay to go and ask them, Hey, do you have a project that you're trying to, to launch or, or are you just a student? Like perfectly valid because I guarantee you, if you're like most infrastructure technologies, very good chance that 80% of your registrations are students. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. You, sure. you definitely want students in there, you but, that, yeah. but, you know, you're not going to send a nurture email every two weeks to a student to go and say, hey, I noticed you haven't done anything this week. Like, I mean, maybe you will in your automated system, but I don't think it's going to be... Super- you you want to put them down a different path, really. You want to put them down yeah. a, a student path, right? You know, Exactly. Like, you know, bring this into your class, do something interesting. I mean, like you, you, when you look at what 
Qualtrics did in terms of like using students to drive the adoption of their software through enterprise over like the course of a decade. And it was amazing, right? It was like, yeah, you know, seed it so that every student graduates knowing how to use the software. And they're like, you don't use Qualtrics here at this company? <laughs> like, I'm going to sign up for it right now. You're like, what? Like, yeah. yeah. You know, so yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, I mean, again, it put them on a different nurture path. There's a, a different type of thing. But right. on the other hand, if somebody, like, for example, in our business, you know, if you're a Cassandra user and you've got a Cassandra project, then actually the clock is ticking. We have 30 days to convince you, you know, to use it. And again, you know, that means if you couldn't figure out how to hook it up to your app, their nurture email needs to be suggesting to you the, you know, documentation on how to do that. If we see you loaded up a bunch of data, but you didn't seem to make any any calls, nurture email needs to do that. If we did see you did a bunch of traffic, then the nurture email needs to talk to you about scalability options. Is for that kind of nurture system, are you are you using a product or are you built built things internally for that? What's the what's the best way to go about building that kind of nurture like you know, kind of event based nurture flow? Um you know, so like everybody else, you're perpetually in building and rebuilding your system. Actually, I, yeah. what I really liked was your anecdote, because I when I when I used your stuff, I was like, your nurture emails are are really good. And you were like, you were like, Well, I write them. And I was like, I've <laughs> I've told that story to so many people, like <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's still true. It was at the time when we talked, I think. Yeah. I think they were just personal emails from me to you, maybe. Who knows? I don't know. Who, Go to bed. But I mean, but like, what, what do you have under the hood? Like, you know, what are you using right now? Is there, is there like a... Is right it, now, we're actually using a bespoke system. Okay, great. So yeah. bespoke system... For the developer stuff, for the developer stuff. The, the business stuff goes through like Marketo and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, one of those things, yeah. right. But built internally right now, like based yeah. on, yeah. you know, do you use any like... A, and any system under the hood to like manage different events or like is it hooked into you know going into CRM to tell you what's going on or so because for us what we were seeing was that there was a specific set of events that we needed to look for that were in application so ultimately what it's doing is it's it's basically setting flags in a, in a you know in a profile yeah. um, and then the profile is just part of an email system Yep. Actually, I don't know what the specific email system it is that we're using to send them out, but the the stuff that collects it is just is stuff that's in app because it's in the UX tier, mm. right? So I would actually love for us to have you know used something that was more comprehensive in an off the shelf way. We just didn't find we we you know it was easier for the at the level we were at that where it was easier just to to hack something together. Yeah, and then you're not sending like a thousand different events into some system, you know, about all the things that your users are doing too. So yeah, but I will say, look, I will, I will say our branch points in terms of of the nurture tracks, we have about a dozen different ones. Ultimately, what I hear from from other folks is that they build extensive sort of taxonomies of of user categorization over time, and and so we'd love to get to that level. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I think the uh, the thing that we that we messed up on for a long time was we didn't actually continue the nurture campaign for new folks that were invited to the team. So, you know, mm. our, our product is a multi-person, you know, product. And so, like, you would invite team members, and we weren't following up with those people in a similar nurture campaign. So they were sort of like, whoever signed up first got the emails, and we weren't, like, doing similar kind of, you know, educational and informational emails to the the folks they invited. And I think that's a mistake. I don't know if we fixed it yet, but it's something we have to get done, right? Because that's how you... You spread out in an org, build more experts who know how to use your product and feel more connected to it. Know they can reach out. Know they can actually engage. So, so we use the presence of multiple people in an org as a big signal. Yeah, because ultimately, again, part of what we're trying to do is just build a model on you know how serious do we think they are, 
right? And the more serious they are, the the more that you know our, our head of growth marketing will will write a and you know personal email because ultimately like your funnel is coming down, like you know you're going to get down to like a set of you know. 20 people that you're paying attention to, like on a weekly basis, you're sending email to, like you're actually, you know, going and saying, Hey, how are they doing with that? Right. Yeah, of course. So multiple people in an org is, is, uh, you know, maybe different in your usage model, but for us, that's that like suddenly like you, you want to sit up and be like, okay, for sure. Um, It's funny, actually, when we look at it, the other major signal for us is, do they use intercom? You know, yeah. If if somebody uses that in-app chat, correlates very very highly with the likelihood that they're going to that they're actually going to buy and scale their usage. That's a that's a very good testimonial for the intercom folks, you know. It's yes. like a <laughs> it's like and and I guess it makes sense because if you're if you are it's kind of like if you if you're in a if I'm at if I'm at Nordstrom and I'm walking around and I'm not really going to buy anything. I'm just kind of looking and I'm not really in the buying mood, right? I'm just like, yeah, it's looking at some stuff. It's like I'm not going to bother somebody. They're like, yeah, ask me to need help. No, I'm fine. If I'm like, I need to buy a suit. I need to like do a bunch of get. I need, you know, I'm here to buy something, something specifically. Then I am going to ask for help. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so the the key thing for us was to. So we took all sales out of that cycle. So what we said was, let's go just purely to, like, if if you talk to us, unless you ask to talk to a salesperson in our self-service channel, you're not talking to a salesperson. You're talking to an onboarding engineer. Hmm. And because what we found was that when we looked at the data, like the sales people didn't accelerate things one way or another. I mean, salespeople are very valuable. We've got a big sales team. But in that particular stage, you know, getting them high-quality technical answers is like the best thing we can do for them. Yeah, yeah. That's so true. And then at what point would a, would a seller come in to help move it up the chain either would you do you close it as a project do you try to move it to a platform or do you uh, just no we'll close so project should be able to close in self service now that said you know the the user will signal that they want to talk to a seller now typically mm. they'll do so by going it, it'll typically be that they'll be looking for either some features that might be like you know your premium enterprise feature that something that they want to turn on they need some sort of of some SAML thing some role-based access control whatever exactly yeah. they'll, the they'll, core enterprise ready features that we write this whole website about yeah uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> um well but the thing is is that that what you don't want to do at the project level and this is the part where it'll drive your sellers nuts because your goal your philosophy should be i want to onboard them i want to onboard them onto my technology i'm not What a seller will want to do is they'll be like, oh, I want to supersize the deal. Mm -hmm. Well, at this stage of you working with the user, the goal isn't to supersize. The goal is to just get them to, and if if they feel that that's where you're going, you know, it's going to be a big turnoff, right? So your goal is just, can the product speak for itself? Mm -hmm. And so that's why the point of going and saying, do I put a seller in the loop you know, is probably not a good idea unless the, you know, unless at this point the user has basically identified and gone and said, look, you know, do I get a discount if I commit to a year's usage or things like that? Like, like at that point, okay, now the buyer has gone and said, I want something that's not on the standard menu, in which case that's great. That's where, that that is where you've got a real sales process. 
Otherwise, what you're you're much better off to just have you know again what we call an onboarding engineer who's fully capable of making sure that that you're using the right stuff and their interest is just about getting the user to succeed. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, how do you determine though how much onboarding to like invest per customer? Like, do you kind of weight that out and say like you know oh we expect this account because I mean there's like you only have so many onboarding engineers and so many hours in the day, right? You typically want to. There's a couple of different ways of doing this. Um, so first of all, if you've got the situation where like all of your onboarding engineers are being swamped, and you may be in that situation, I think you're going down a different path. Mm. I think that what you have to go and at that point and go and say is one is like that might be a good problem to have is maybe that there's too much demand. On the other hand, if you're swamping all your onboarding engineers and you're doing so for a small amount of users, then you may have a problem with general product usability. And, and again, it may be somewhere in between on that. Yeah. But if it just turns out that you've got so much demand that you don't have enough onboarding engineers, then like that's a good problem to have. Yeah, I mean, what's the average kind of engagement that an onboarding engineer would spend with like a, with a customer? A couple hours? That's a good question. You know, in our case, we're looking at it, I think it's typically a half an hour or less. And, okay. you know, if the issue is configuration and setup and things like that, those are good interactions to have. I mean, again, we the next time around, we'll document it. We'll, we'll be fixing it in our UX. We'll be doing that sort of thing. So they don't tend to stretch out that long. If they do, it's still worth doing because... You know, you're, you're that conversation, you're finding out who that that user is. If they're an active prospect, so again, part of this is you're doing your qualification. If you're spending two hours and it's a student or a personal project, then then maybe that doesn't make sense to do, right? Like you probably, yeah, yeah. on the other hand, you know, if they're like a SaaS application or something that's being built on your infrastructure, like, I mean, sure. why wouldn't you spend two hours? Why wouldn't you spend more time than that? Yeah. So, okay, so you do sort of, scope it a little bit and you just leave it up to the onboarding engineers to determine like, you know, invest more time here or kind of like try to send them down a continuously more self-serve path. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference between from an onboarding standpoint is different than like your support situation, right? Like mm, okay. if what the user is doing is looking at general enablement, you, you do have to have, and again, this is the part where depending on where you're at, like if you just don't have the enablement content that you can direct people to, like I, I guess the short answer is going to be, you very quickly find all of the limitations of your content. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> all your docs. Yeah. You're like, oh, why isn't this documented? Why is this not? Yeah. Why is this edge case not mentioned? Right. Yeah, you're like, yeah. I I, I got to say this is where everyone's experience because I've been in that stage where well, so what you'll end up very quickly is the good news on all this stuff is it's going to shine a light really quick as to what matters and what doesn't on your docs. You may be in a brutal situation your first couple of weeks if you don't have all the docs in there. Like You'll be like, oh my God, like, like, uh, you know, like one way or another, somebody has to be able to learn how to use your product to use it. I, either you're either going to be having, and when I say I'm boarding engineer, I mean if it's if you're like a new startup, I mean it literally might be you on the other end of the phone. I've I've definitely had to do that on previous startups, like the yeah. onboarding engineer. Hi, I'm Ed, your onboarding engineer. Like it's my separate job as founder of the company, but hey, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, in, in which case, yeah, you're then you're living it, yeah, uh, and then you're like, okay, wow, like. Uh, we need a quick start guide. 
pronto. Yeah, we, we've written a few quick start guides in our day. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, very true. You know, I mean, and this is for us, it's, all, it's also where I think like as an industry, standardization is super helpful, right? So like as protocols get standardized, as like people standardize on ways of doing anything, it's like the interoperability and like, like, hey, I have something and like, you're like, yeah, great. We work with that standard or that protocol, like load it up in this way and do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, oh, great. Like now I can see something working. It might not use all the functionality of, of the tool or the product, but like think about this, even the telemetry and, you know, kind of monitoring space, like things like open telemetry and these other things that really, I think, unlock companies in terms of onboarding, you know, just to, to let folks get, get value from the product. Yes. Um, it's interesting because we spent the first hour just talking about what I would call like the enterprise grind. Mm. You know, I think there's a lot of, you know, interesting insights when we're comparing notes on these things. But if you really want to succeed, you need to get leverage in the model. Mm. And leverage in the model comes from the fact that like, you know, for example, you have a distributed system. Like, for example, like the the first 10 years of Cassandra, Cassandra is a cluster deployed database, right? Like, like you can't just deploy a single node, at least not for production usage, which means like right out of the gate, you know, you need at least three nodes and most people are doing so with, with, a, with a fleet of nodes, right? So for the majority of the life of Cassandra, it's been like these bespoke tools that we've shipped or the open source project or, or that Datastax as a company that we've shipped for people to do this. We would love, and it's a big part of our strategy, has been to like, let's get Cassandra on top of Kubernetes. Because now all of this stuff for dealing with with you know your nodes and your pods and everything can just be standardized. Like just use just use Kubernetes, use replicated, use you know like like now we've got a way of 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 managing this fleet that doesn't have to be like let's reinvent the wheel for distributed systems management. And so that's where you suddenly get leverage in the model. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what we've done, you know, we started an open source project called Kate Sandra that was entirely around going and saying, let's like reimagine Cassandra on top of Kubernetes so that now like there's leverage on how to do this that if you are, you know, a Kubernetes expert, now, you know, you can go and do a Helm install of, of Cassandra and Everything is going through the operator, and it and like we've automated out a lot of the pain that made Cassandra just you know so painful for the last ten years. And so, so you always like that's where standardization and like like mm. yeah, you as a founder need to always be going and looking and saying, okay, is there a way that I can go and and remove a lot of of the pain? If you don't, then you're back to the enterprise grind. And the enterprise grind might means, you know, I need onboarding engineers, I need great documentation. Everything that you do that's non-standard, you're 100% on the hook for, one way or another for, for solving. Such a great point. I mean, from my, my personal experience, I'd say, like, to actually decide, okay, we're going to embrace all of these standards, partially is a little bit scary because you're, you're taking... You're basically taking things out of your control, yes. right? And you're saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna trust this community, we're gonna trust this thing, and, and maybe it's not your vision or your, not the ideal way that you wanted to do it. You're like, oh, we have to work around how this thing works. We're kind of tied to this other system and its success, and so you know that's scary. And you're like, we could build a better thing, right, underneath the hood. And this is like, you know, everybody built their own 
orchestration and scheduling systems that you know uh, that orchestrated all these different applications for years before everything kept sort of standardized on, on Kubernetes. And and I'm sure people have like it, Cassandra probably has some kind of like internal orchestration, the original version, right? That like it, it was hard yeah. to rip out and hard to be you know. And, and people are like, oh, I don't want to lose that, right? Because we you know it, it, it works so well for this. And so you know, I don't. Now we're only going to be able to work with folks who are going to use Kubernetes. We're only going to be able to work with folks that are using the system. And so it's like it's hard to to sort of as a founder be like no like everything is about standardization and that's going to pull you out of the enterprise grind to your point it's also going to give you you're playing to where the future is going because ultimately like fully bespoke systems are so unappealing over time and they don't like they just don't scale and they don't like you can't hire around them you can't do all these things so you want the least bespoke solution because it simplifies things Yes. Well, pl- I mean, uh, if you're the founder, if you're the CEO, platform strategy is is the hardest part of the job. Mm. And you can't delegate that. Like, it's where all of your leverage comes from. And I can't think of a single big success where there wasn't a bet, a serious bet at the heart of, uh, on platform strategy at, at the heart of the product strategy. Like you went and said, okay, I'm all in on this one thing. And if you bet wrong, you're going to be kind of screwed. And unfortunately, like I can go back, like, like back when we were doing epicentric, like, and this thing, enterprise Java beans that the old timers might remember, like was this big thing. And I remember having this conversation with, you know, our chief architect, a uh, fellow by the name of Dean Moses, uh, who who I later went and founded an, another company with, and then Paul Emery, who who went and later was he was our head of engineering, went and joined a bunch of other companies. And so you know, we having this conversation, like I was I was like I had drank the Kool Aid on on Enterprise Java Beans, and I was like, so you're saying Enterprise Java Beans are a hoax? And like like these two guys were like, but they were both like, hell yeah. And and I was like, okay, fine. Like we're gonna miss out. We're gonna miss all the platform leverage. And and this was like, it was later. It was like a complete debacle. Like Spring Framework later came in, and for people that followed this stuff, like you may have heard of Spring and Pivotal. Mm. Uh, Pivotal Labs was really before they got known for Cloud Foundry. Was like really like all about Spring. And if you're in the Java world, like that turned out to be the right bet. And there's lots of examples like that. And so in the early days of you know, a lot of things within Kubernetes. And, and in fact, in fact, we still see some of these things like with, you know, there's still a lot of unanswered questions in service mesh, you know, but you'd see like everybody going all in and saying, oh, it's this thing. Mm. And that's the part where, at least personally for me, that's the part that, that keeps me up at night where you're like, okay, we're going to make a bet. And if you bet right on the platform, then your life is going to be dramatically simpler. Um, for your users, for you, for your technical debt, like you are going to get vast acceleration of your business, and you are going to save millions of dollars. But you know your engineering leaders, and oftentimes, like this is all in one person. Like you are both your your technical leader and your product leader in one person. You know, like on the flip side, like you never want you always want to control your destiny. Like I know plenty of startups that have gone and said, "Oh, I'm going to bet on this next." you know, big API or standard that everybody's gone and talked up and then it goes nowhere. This is where creative destruction lives, right? It's like if you make the right bet, then you win. And, and yeah. you know, big companies are afraid to make the bets. And so that, you know, if, if enough people make a bunch of different bets and the big companies don't make them, then a small company that made the right bet wins. And it's not every company that made a bet. It's just the one that made the right one. 
So, well, exactly. And so that's, uh, you know, platform strategy and ecosystem strategy. Those are the two pieces and, and, you know, so ecosystem strategy in terms of like what ecosystem you're going to be in or. Yes, yeah. So, okay. so platform strategy can apply to both the, from an ecosystem standpoint. Like if you go and like read like textbooks on platform strategy, which uh, I have done. Yes. <laughs> and you start getting into like things like multi-sided markets and all of that. Yeah. I usually actually refer to that as ecosystem strategy to differentiate it from how most technologists think of platform strategy, which is what do I build on? What do I leverage? And there's there's mm. a lot of overlap on this, um, but sort of choosing which technologies, which APIs, and so on, those are, tend to be your, your technology platforms. There is definitely, like I said, a big overlap with the ecosystem components of it. That's where you tend to get into these, as, as I said, sort of, you know, what are your market synergies? But yeah, I mean, you probably spend all day thinking about these things as, as do I or as to anybody, because just lots of landmines there. Yeah, I mean, I there's, I was just looking up the book that I read that I, that actually I think is somewhat of a textbook on platform strategy. It's called "The Business of Platforms: yeah. Strategy in the Age of of Digital Competition, Innovation, and Power" by Michael A. Cusimano. Very good book. Does kind of break down a lot of these things and kind of to your point gives you all the different sides of like how platforms work and uses Microsoft and a couple of different examples. Yep. But that that is a really useful sort of. I mean, it's good to have a vernacular, right? So, like, if you're yeah. thinking about how to do platform and you make your your product and your your engineers, your other folks read it together, sort of a nice way to then be able to talk about like the things you're experiencing. Yeah, I'd, I'd shout out to you know anything that Marshall Van Alstyne has, has mm. worked on in platform scales was was his book. But but the flip side of it, for a technologist perspective, one of my favorite books is this book called uh, Racing the Beam. Uh, it's part of the MIT Platform Studies series where, you know, it was actually this was the first consumer technology platform, mm. you know, because it was a case where you had the, the video game console and obviously it was your, it was your, technically it was your first preceded home computers and everything was where a lot of the lessons of software platforms were learned. And so I always plug that one as, as one that people should read. And it's great for, for like engineers and technologists because a lot of the lessons, a lot of the, the platform studies books these days get into a lot of sort of dry economic theory, whereas like, like this stuff gets into the, down into the bits and bytes where any engineer would appreciate it as well. So it's a good, good on-ramp for engineers as well who want to start thinking about these things. Yeah, it's... it's- I've I've found myself kind of going back through. It's it's hard to call them memoirs, but they're like you know somebody that worked at Apple that wrote about like how they did software engineering at Apple, or someone who worked yeah. at you know Microsoft writing about what they did there. I mean, or more recently, the like um, working backwards book about how Amazon does their you know kind of product management stuff is really great. Like so, it's really getting into the details of what they do that I think is is helpful. And there's so much knowledge out there, so much to consume that you can sort of really understand and then and then again i think sharing these with your teams is a great way to create vernacular to create like a common set of knowledge you can then work on and then move from so you have reference stories you know because sometimes like you know i know in your career you've worked with some of the same people many many times so you have a lot of like oh it's another one of those there's another one of those like you know you can kind of point back to like past experiences but if you don't have that as a team then you you want to be able to use like a frame of reference of like different you know sort of like common stories that you can reference and say like, oh, we don't want to do that. You know, we don't want to be our team already advantage together. It's like leadership principles kind of stuff, right? So you can like refer back to those things as we're trying to avoid those traps or et cetera. So it's really interesting. I think that if you are a prospective founder, if you're a um, you know, people who 
are trying to sort of navigate product and, and business strategy, like, you know, going and getting the common vernacular, understanding all of these sort of important lessons in the, you know, evolution of the industry, how, you know, it is, it is the part, you know, when people are breaking into the industry, they hate how much sort of the, and I remember this when I was, you know, when I was first doing it, but I got started by reading a bunch of these books. Like, like when I, when I got started, I'd read all of these books, like on like hmm. the founding of Apple and all that. So I had, I had just sort of grown up in, in reading all of these articles and, and, and books and all. But if you haven't, then everything ends up sounding like that. There was a, that Star Trek Next Generation episode, uh, Darmok, where, where everything was, the aliens all, uh, all talked through, through this literary analogy. And, and, uh, uh, and, and if you didn't sort of grok it, you were like, what the hell, you know, it, it didn't make any sense. So, so I do think building it into the culture where you sort of, you, you know, have everybody like read these books or stories or histories. It's a good way to sort of introduce it. Mm-hmm. And the other important part is that, you know, everybody who's really passionate about technology knows some of these stories, but they don't know them the same way. So mm-hmm. that's why I do think your point in creating the common vernacular is really useful because what'll happen is like this will even happen. I, I'd say at this point, if you're working with well, just in terms of where we are in terms of, of the tech industry, a lot of people right now who are in in a number of the leadership positions in the tech industry, so people who are uh, the old fossil dinosaurs like myself, a lot of us are people who who sort of grew up in the shadow of when Java was, was kind of becoming a thing. Mm. And so you'll hear a lot of analogies that'll go back to the early Java enterprise days. And so that's the part that ends up being kind of this kind of common language. But if, if you didn't sort of live through that, if you didn't see sort of the Java platform wars and, and you know, Sun's standardization attempts and Microsoft's uh, attempt to fork it or the, the Java enterprise stuff and that whole time period, then you might not sort of like kind of get like, you know what are all these people talking about? So it's it's useful to kind of to to go back and 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 pay attention to that. On the other hand, well, on the other hand, the problem is it, it's not like the founding of Apple. Like so, <laughs> there's not like compelling movies and books written about it, right? Yes. So like it becomes <laughs> fairly hard to access some of that information. You know, there weren't podcasts about those things at that point. It wasn't like so. It, it's actually interesting to think about like how do you even kind of get some of that history. You know, you just you have to you have to be willing to crawl through some old books to get there. You know, that's kind of the best way. I, I think so. I mean, to, to on the flip side of things, you know, I, I again, if people are are worrying about that, it, it's a double edged sword. Like trying to trying to take the past and, and and apply it to the future doesn't always work, right? Sometimes yeah. it's like there's a lesson that you learned. You can't, but then now it's like the time that it would have worked, right? So yeah. like, I always say this to my team. I'm like, I'm like, look, we've tried something like this before. But I am hundred percent willing to try it again because, like, now could be the time when it's different. So, like, let's do it, right? Yeah, I mean, every every single. I I would say that it's sort of like, you know, the false negative is a bigger problem. Like, people go and say, "Oh, it, that never worked. We tried it. It didn't work." You know, "Oh, that was right. tried by so and so. It didn't work." And and oftentimes people do it with with like incomplete knowledge. Like like they go and say, "Oh, that was tried and it didn't work." And what they don't understand that it was like, "No, I actually worked in a bunch of other settings that you personally didn't happen to see." So it's always interesting to kind of 
you know, when an idea like that happens, I always get excited because it's like a great opportunity to go and like, hey, let me go to Wikipedia and actually read a, reread a little bit of the history and see if maybe my my remembrance wasn't exactly correct. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, you know, people like to to over overly pattern match on everything. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those. I think I just remember from my like early work experiences like people being like oh we've already tried that and like writing it off as like one of the most frustrating things because it was like well i clearly think it's going to work now and i have like different information than you did before it's like we have so much more knowledge and information today than we did at any other time previously right like we're, yep. we are like inherently we have all of the world's you know kind of the past knowledge now there's an argument you could say that we lose some of that knowledge and so history repeats itself to some sense but like <laughs> you know if you're a student of the history then you kind of can can kind of watch out for those things and and try to avoid making the same mistakes but like not lose your spirit of like well let's try it, it might work this time right exactly exactly so this is going to be like the the least enterprise software kind of five ten minute discussion but one of the things you told me about like three years ago that I just found to be completely like, mind-blowing and barely believed it was true was basically when France like had the world's first like full computer system that in every home. They had like a PC on every desk uh, or every kitchen counter yeah. before like Microsoft was even founded or something, right? Like w- what what's the story about that? Yeah, so that was that was um Minitel. Basically, uh, this was back in the early '80s. You know that they uh, the the French government decided that they should have a uh, an online service that we should have access to, and they had things like e-commerce and and access to content and all of this that preceded really sort of you know at least what we generally think of as as the rise of the online services that started to happen in the late 80s and early 90s like when when AOL entered its heyday and so so it was really interesting to learn about the only reason why I knew this of course was cuz I was you know when I was growing up I was reading Byte magazine and you know it was before the internet the only way you would learn these things was by reading the computer magazines and and so they had all these articles on this thing and so you know uh I I was aware of it but then in the early days of of the internet, I, I did have the opportunity, and actually, one of our our early investors in in back in Epicentric was France Telecom, and they originally were getting very active because they were trying to to uh, in in internet companies because they had seen what was possible with the internet. And so, um, a friend of mine, Amarik Renaud, who's still a, a VCN and angel investor for many years in Silicon Valley, but I first met him in the '90s because. France Telecom had sent him to go and and say, hey, you know, go and invest in internet startups because we know about uh, where all this stuff could lead. And by the way, I do want to say, actually, I just discovered this earlier today, which was going and talking about, again, the this MIT Platform Studies series. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually do have a book on on Minitel. I've not read it, but but if it's as good as many of their other books in the series, uh, I, I'm going to pick up a copy of it, and and, uh, and and that'll probably be my reading over the weekend. Oh, that's funny. Oh, yeah, so there it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and so the idea here, I'm looking at this Platform Studies page. This is super cool. This is like them reviewing all these different pieces. And so, yeah. I mean, you, things you told me about Minitel was like, there was businesses that were started that were like Minitel businesses, right? It was like, yep. it was basically what happens if everybody in the country is online, like, and can, you know, it's all connected. Seeing that experiment run once before, 
like it gives you some, you know, to that point of French telecom, like investing in internet companies, gives them some foresight into like what what's possible when it actually rolls out worldwide. Yeah, I think I think that it was really interesting that the telco companies were the obviously the the first companies that were able to go and see like building a business on network effects um, of of that nature. And the amount of, of innovation that they did, it's it's a shame that they didn't navigate the the transition into the the internet age. I, to to the given that they ran so many experiments, like things like Minitel, but but even you know, I'm not sure if I've told you this story, but you know, my dad was at, at Bell Labs, and and you know, sort of his technical contribution was that that he built the the digital repeater circuits that were part of DSL and and uh, ISDN and all of this stuff and oh wow yeah and even at the time that they were building it they they had these ideas of of things like video calls and all of this stuff that that of course they never realized on the phone system but now that's literally what we're doing today as we you know record this where like sure yeah but yeah. you know the part about the future not being evenly distributed is is definitely a truism yeah no that's that's it's really interesting. I mean, it's very true in enterprise software too, right? We talk about different companies that have the, the patterns. Yes, sort of back to our regularly scheduled, regularly scheduled program here. Uh, exactly. This is just a, another random sort of question, though. Is and I'm guessing you know you've you've been you've done enterprise software long enough. How do you think about like deprecating sort of products or like you know features or you know as a product leader, like hey. You know, we for example, we have some SDKs that were like these things have been around for a while. There's a handful of customers still using them. We need to get them to the newest SDK. Like, what's the best practices, or what are the what are the things that don't work when you're trying to get them over the line? Like, how do you keep that? You know, because it's hard to transition folks too many times before they're like, hey, you know, why like why did you leave me on the old system? Like, put me on the new thing. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that. I'd give very different answers depending on where you are in your business. If your company is less than two years old and you've still got a small set of customers, and depending on where you are, I mean, you know, if those two customers are like, you know, giant companies and you're making, like, even going back to what I'm saying, like, let's suppose you are making $10 million, but let's say it's, it's less than 10 companies. You actually should just go and literally do whatever is necessary, show up at their place and install the new stuff and just do the upgrade for them. You don't want to be locked in. you know. And to that degree, you should just be like, I'll do whatever's necessary. Look, I startup founder, I will, I will spend my investors' money to essentially go and do everything that's necessary to upgrade your systems. I will put people at your location. We will do it. Sure. Like we do not, you know. And the reason why I say that is because it's not going to get easier later. Yeah, because guess what? You won't have that option when you're at like the fifty to hundred um, stage. Like those customers, you will be carrying them on whatever version they're on forever. Hmm. Why is that different? Like, why is that just because the contracts say that? What's the reason? Yeah, because they'll never be a good time to, to the contracts. You will you'll be at the point not just the contracts, but you'll you'll have by the time you're getting to your fifty to hundred in revenue. It isn't a handful of customers. It's it's going to be fifty customers, right? Like mm. at least, yeah. you know, unless and, and that's assuming you did a really good job and you were you were getting the proverbial million dollar deals. The reality is, if you're doing to fifty to hundred, you probably are operating on a base of at least two hundred customers, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's no way you're going to do a mass migration of two hundred customers. This is where, and I've been through this 
several times. This is where you're getting to your sort of proverbial like 2.0 to 3.0 upgrades. Sure. And yeah. and guess what? Like you'll be going and saying like for what economic benefit am I going to go and traumatize those people? Right. Like you could actually just you'll start to go and say, "You know what? It is probably better for me you know, like your engineering org at this point is at the point where it's like 50 people as well. Like you're like at the point where you're going to say, it'd be better to just have five engineers off in the corner whose job it is to maintain that thing than it is to go and create an upgrade nightmare. Hmm. You know, and it keeps getting worse from there. So like that's where you you will get there eventually. You just don't want to get there too soon. Interesting, okay. I mean, and, and honestly, this is what like when you get into... You know, going back to the point that I was making, there are people like when I was talking about that enterprise company that I I did, you know, 22 years ago. There are people who are currently for the software that we did at Epicentric that went to Vignette that went to OpenText. There are companies that are renewing their ELA with OpenText today on the software that that I built 20 years ago, and and, mm. and you know, and it's being updated for the latest Java versions and all of that, and and the people are getting value out of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's great. Like, that's a different business, though. And every enterprise company, though, grows up to do that. Like, Oracle has products on their price list from companies that they acquired from other companies where they are maintaining it. And and Mm -hmm. if the customer wants to upgrade, they'll help the customer. If the customer wants to move to a new platform, they'll do those things. But it is actually a sign of, like, successful enterprise software. I mean, if you've done your job right, Grant, there's, there will be somebody 20 years from now that is using replicated, whatever your current version that you shipped this year, they'll be like using that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the version that's going to be the best forever anyway. So. It'll be the best forever. Right, yeah, right. No, no, I'm saying it's like there'll be somebody yeah. who's using it for something and they'll be paying top dollar to do it. Bucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They'll, yeah. They'll, they'll be doing it. And, and, you know, who knows? This will be like, like replicated will have gone and done its IPO and it'll been acquired by Microsoft and it'll be. You mean been, we'll have acquired Microsoft? Yeah, you'll be, you've acquired Microsoft and so yeah, on. And good, like, yeah. yeah, no, I like that. That's good. But I'm saying yeah. like, like 20 years from now, I mean, that's part of what enterprise value means. So that's like a feature, not a bug. Mm. That said, you don't want to get into the situation where you are getting into the carrying costs of legacy until your company's at the point where you are like mature enough to be able to first of all you want to make sure that that the value of the customer is getting you don't want to be doing legacy carrying costs for you know sort of small projects where somebody is is paying you 10k a year right like but when you get to the point where the sum total of that is a hundred million dollar a year business, then yeah, you'll be carrying it forever. Yeah, uh, you know, I've lived long enough where I've seen all seen that full life cycle where where you do get to that, and it's it's a very different. You know, maybe some of the folks listening in are 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 at that stage, or maybe they're working on some of those projects, and they're like, "Oh my god, I wish I could get people off of that stuff." But but no, I mean, it's a business in and of itself. Yeah, you it's, just it's, don't want you just don't want your early stage startup to be about servicing that business prematurely. Right. I mean, the the challenge for early stage startups is when you're actually in the beginning trying to find true product market fit, you might iterate a couple times. We iterated several times in the SDK before we had true product market fit. 
with the product we released two years ago called COTS. Yeah. And so the, the SDKs prior to that, like one, you don't know that you have real product market fit until like, you know, maybe a year after the product's been live, right? So maybe it's, you know, because that's when you're like, okay, this has been super scalable. It's this, this is actually the where we're going. Because what you don't want to do is prematurely migrate all of your customers to each of your iterative attempts. Yeah. If the iteration between like one and product market fit, there's three different versions. Like, and people are happily using product one, like the three iterations between, you don't want to try to pull them along to every new, every new version every time. And so I think that's a risk because unless you know, this is where we're really investing, like, because this is where we have product market fit, then you're kind of like prematurely pulling people into an experiment. You might pull one or two customers in, or maybe a new customer in, yes. but you're not going to try to pull all of your customers in and your, maybe even your most valuable customers. At least that's what we did at Replicated. And so I, now I look at where we're at and I'm like, okay, now you know, I've got a couple of customers still on this older SDK and this older SDK, and I need to get rid of a couple of them. And so yes. you know, that's my, I'm trying to feel like, well, which one, you know, how do I, what, what do I do to not screw this up and, and not, you know, because ultimately, to your point, like one of the key things about enterprise software, it's trust, it's relationships, right? And like yes. what you're doing is you're, you're creating a partnership and you're saying, look, we're going to be here to make sure you're successful with this. And so, you know, I got an email from a vendor that we worked with and they were like, oh, we're changing your pricing in a month to be 10x what it was. And I was like, well, like that's not a, that's not a good practice either, right? Like they have to have a mix, right? You have to be like, hey, we're going to support what you need. We're going to transition you in the right direction, you know, because we want you to trust us you know, for the next 10 years. We want you to trust us and say, look, these folks have, have been on our side whenever, whenever we've needed an update, whenever the market's updated, they've figured it out and they're, and they're the folks that, we're, that we trust to help solve this problem for us kind of in an ongoing fashion. I think that's absolutely right. I think that the biggest challenge is, and this is, this is again, this is one of these ones where the founder CEO feels this very acutely. Um, and even the non, even just the CEO, this is where it sits on the CEO, which is that, that you have this realization that all business value, unfortunately, comes from the things that don't scale and may not be sustainable. Um, and your job is to like, or let me put it this way, all business value is created right at that edge, right? Mm-hmm. And you cross that edge at your peril. Yeah. Right. And so, so, you know, from, from an engineering standpoint, less your product standpoint, you're always like, oh, well, that won't scale. And you're like, yeah, but it's right at that point mm-hmm. where you are actually getting to the point where the customer, it, where the most value to the customer is. And so, yeah, SDKs are perennially the one that always is, is painful drivers, things like that. Because going back to what we talked about from like a platform and an ecosystem strategy, it's like, oh, the first thing it's like, oh, no, you, you got to meet your developers and users where they are. I need an SDK for that platform. I need this and that, right? Like you're building your interfaces. Yeah. And at your sort of ramp up stage, like those are you know, like, you're like, what can I do? What can I do to get product market fit faster? Well, more like, oh, I need an SDK for that language or that operating system. Like, let's do it. And then you you rack these up and and at the same time, you're like racking up the costs of sustainability. Like, okay. Yeah. And, and, and being able to move fast enough, you know, and like, and just like, I mean, for us, it's like, it's honestly, the, the, it's our docs get so messy. We like literally launched a new doc site and we're like, what do we do with all these old docs, right? Like these yeah. things that are supporting these other SDKs, you know, and that's, that's messy in itself. So, you know, if you talk about like how important that is, it's like, well, you need to figure out the right way to clean it up or else people get confused. New customers get confused and start looking at the old docs. And you're like, well, no, no, that's the old thing before the thing that you're using. 
Right. Like, so for example, in our business, we've got, you know, the drivers that people use to talk to Cassandra. And mm. in the early days of, of data stacks, like having these drivers was like a competitive advantage. It on-ramped people. I mean, it's just, it was actually just a business driver. Like, oh, you know, people are using Java. Let's have a Java driver. People are using Ruby. Let's have a Ruby driver. And like mm. all of these languages. And so, so we'd build a bunch of these drivers. Every one of those drivers represents a commitment, right? Like at the time we you know, I, I joined DataStacks two years ago, but but ten years ago, it was not the wrong answer to go. If I if you were if you were running the product strategy, you'd be like, we need more drivers, right? Ten years later, you're like, oh, this is a sustainability nightmare, and so then you go and say, okay, what can we do to consolidate these? And we go and say, oh, well, maybe if we build on top of gRPC, that we can eliminate the need for language specific drivers, but you know, the technology isn't exactly perfect for doing that. And you've got a lot of people who have baked in these these drivers. And so so you're like, okay, how you know, how do you manage your investment around that? And it's not an easy answer. Part of being an enterprise business though is, you know, people have bought in for the fact that that they've said, I'm gonna choose this vendor who is committed to supporting these things. And so you have to do the right thing by that. That that's the relationship angle. Yeah, it's very true. All right, Ed. Well, I think that probably wraps it up. Is there anything else uh, you want to you want to chime in before we end? No, it here? I think this was this was a great conversation. I I think that you know, hopefully for folks listening, this is this is really sort of the essence of what goes into product strategy, like just the all all the stuff that we grapple with. Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is really amazing. I mean, this is like you know, you again, you and I have talked many many times, and this was just trying to get get that out to the public so folks can hear kind of how we think about products and different problems. And I always love just like bringing things up that I'm thinking about. So thanks for, for tackling some of those with me as well. Awesome. Always a pleasure. Look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah. And one more, where, where can people find you online? Where, what's the best way? Uh, you know, I'm 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 on Twitter, but most of the stuff I do these days is on, on the Distax blog and things along those lines. Great. All right. Look, we'll look for Ed enough there. Cool. Thanks, Ed. Take care. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.